0: Okay. This is the Fictionist First Podcast. Uh, this has been Forstenzer. I'm here with Alessandro Raj. Hello. And uh, we're listening to her essay, Dead Bird Stories for Non-Believers. And we're going to listen to it. And we're going to talk about it. And we hope that you enjoy it.
1: A few months after my father died of a heart attack while jump-starting a truck in a snowstorm, I left a bar too drunk for the brakeless bicycle I rode into rush hour traffic. It was St. Patty's Day. Days later, I had a limp from the tiny Toyota that hit me and a $25 moving violation fine. The accident had been all my fault. I was lost. When I hadn't eaten in days, despite ordering all of the Chinese takeout I never allowed myself, I contacted a friend from college. Although I am an atheist without a speck of religion in my heart, I asked Vanya, a spiritualist, for help. She had recently been initiated into a tradition based in the Congo, what seemed to me like Santeria and what I disparaged as voodoo because, having grown up religious, I felt particularly dismissive of religion. Vanya listened to my complaints. I couldn't eat, couldn't keep a boyfriend, my job was a dead-end street. The luxury condo whose mortgage I couldn't afford didn't even have a bedroom. I spent evenings sitting on the marble bathroom floor, listening to NPR, cooking my feet with a space heater. Since I hardly ate, I was always freezing. When was the last time you visited your dad? Vanya asked, though I had not mentioned my father. My long-standing woes did not include the fairly mundane event of a parent dying. I had agonized about my father's death like a daddy's girl, realizing at six the inevitability of existing in the world without him. As a child, I regularly envisioned how I would react to his death. Would I attend the funeral, shave my head, disappear west on a motorcycle? Losing my father was an ancient specter. Its prospect had tortured me my entire life. When it finally happened, my long hair stayed on my head, I never rode west, despite the hard-won motorcycle license.
0: There are we, there are death rituals in Judaism. They involve like tearing of a uh, garment. Um, in the Bible, it's like sitting in ash. So like I didn't know if what what cutting your hair was about specifically.
1: It was really more uh, a reference to my vanity. Nothing really religious. I, re- I mean, even though I grew up in the church, I am just not religious at all so for me it would have been oh look at me I'm not going to be as pretty as I used to be now that my father's dead that's all it meant for me honestly
0: and like how is it that that's the thing that popped into your mind like it's you're in terrible morning and the thought was like this sort of attack on your own appearance
1: oh well because I had heard that like removing hair like you know shaving a beard or growing a beard or I know in hmm I, I know that in lots of cultures that's something that you do do so, I, but for me, it wouldn't have had a religious significance. It would have been, "Look at me, I'm suffering. Look at my mourning manifesting itself in a physical way. Right. I'm less pretty now." <laughs>
0: <laughs> and um, and the motorcycle trip out west. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's obviously sounds romantic and awesome, but the idea that I mean, what's that about?
1: Leaving everyone behind and just the dramatic gesture. I guess my point was, I had, it had felt so dramatic in my mind's eye. But then when it happened, it's it's not dramatic. Everybody's parent dies. In fact, that's what I often said to people. I would say, I don't feel sorry for me. It's going to happen to you, which is an asshole thing to say. But <laughs> it's, it's, how it's, very, very <laughs> it's how I felt. Very kind. It's how I felt. It's so mundane when it happens. Like everybody's parents die, and there was no need for a dramatic gesture. There was no need for any of it. Honestly, just there's nothing you can do about it once it finally happens. I told Vanya I had not been to my father's grave since the funeral. Then I tried to return the conversation to my tangible troubles. I had real problems. I can't eat anything, I reiterated. I run miles every day, but I can't eat. Go see your dad, she repeated. Clean his grave. I sighed. What the hell was cleaning a grave? I feel like I'm going to fall over, I repeated to Vanya. I can't eat. Go see your dad, she said, ending the conversation. Clean his grave. Then she hung up. I rolled my eyes. Clean his grave. Sounded like some voodoo bullshit. My father's grave is just outside of D.C. in Adelphi, Maryland, in a cemetery less than a block from my childhood home. I played in this cemetery, learned to drive in it, hung out in it after school with my friends. There were cattail circled ponds around which geese roamed in packs. Low-income high-rises towered over the trees that separated the cemetery from the beltway. Adelphi is mostly what scholars call a suburban ghetto, but this graveyard was an oasis. On the way to the cemetery after hanging up with Vanya, I passed another staple of my childhood, Popeye's. The fast-food restaurant was also walking distance from my childhood home. Often, after working shifts at his two full-time jobs my father would stop at the drive-thru in lieu of making something like hot dog curry for dinner. Needing to sleep a few hours before his next shift, he would bring a box of biscuits and fried chicken that he himself would be too tired to eat.
0: So can you tell me a little bit about hot dog curry?
1: Hot dog curry is delicious. Uh, My father could make curry out of anything and everything and often like the cheapest... (laughs) potted meats and fake, I mean, he was, he was amazing. He was a, a magician with everything and he could make, um, any fake meat, m- mixed meat, foam, any, anything at all. He could make it taste delicious. So it wasn't just like chicken curry. It was often like corned beef hash curry, which is delicious also.
0: <laughs> um, and what, I don't know what else goes into a hot dog curry other than hot dogs, obviously.
1: So you may not know this, uh, curry is basically like you can have just a basic base curry uh, which uh, my family makes out of coriander, chili powder, a little bit of turmeric and that 's it in oil, and so then you can use that curry base for any type of curry, so my chicken curry beef curry and shrimp curry are all essentially the same curry, they just have different meat in it, so he would just substitute whatever we had um for that curry for the day
0: and do you are do you make hot dog curry still yourself, or did you you 've left that in the in the past
1: no comment <laughs> At the intersection by the Popeyes, I felt a twinge of real appetite. I was the typical perennially dieting American woman, so I couldn't remember the last time I had eaten any fast food, never mind Popeyes. All of a sudden, I felt hungrier than I had in weeks. I pulled over and ordered my childhood favorite, a large Cajun rice, to go. I would visit my dad and eat this meal from a Styrofoam cup, and I would feel better, I thought. Maybe Vanya was right. Maybe I hadn't mourned. As I walked toward my father's still visibly new grave, I felt good. Finally, I was hungry. I couldn't wait to eat the ambiguously meaty rice, this strange food that had meant so much to me growing up. When I reached his grave, fragrant paper bag in hand, I stopped short. I squinted, though I could see, incredulous. His flat gray marker was covered in broken glass and geese shit. Clean his grave, Vanya had said. I tried to explain what I saw. The glass might have come from the trash can up the steep hill I had parked on. It had just rained. Maybe a mini landslide had brought down the glass shards. Considering the number of geese stalking about, geese shit didn't seem unusual. Yet when I glanced at the nearby markers, none had the streaky purple clumps that covered my father's marker. Clean his grave. Using a water bottle and Popeye's paper napkins, I cleaned off his grave. Next, I pulled the grass that had overgrown the marker's edges and removed the old flowers. Then, even more hungry, I sat in the itchy grass and devoured the Cajun rice with a plastic spork. My belly, magnificently flat for weeks, bulged. Appetite, elusive for so long, filled me. Clean his grave, Vanya had said. I wondered if she were a witch. The day my father died, I thought of Spalding Gray, the writer who killed himself by leaping from the Staten Island Ferry, but not because my father was depressed, though he had every right considering how disappointingly childless, spouseless, and working class his children turned out to be.
0: So spouseless, childless, and working class. So I'm curious about um, we talked a little bit about sort of Class and how class plays into self identity and, and and really into your story in a big way <laughs> <laughs> so um, they both they both really struggled to make sure that you guys had what you needed. Can you talk a little bit about that
1: uh, yes, uh, traditional working class immigrant story they busted their butts uh, to create a life for their children, and I think that 's kind of the I don't know, the underlying sadness to their story a little bit is that their children didn't actually uh, turn out maybe the way they wanted. You know, you uh, realize that parents want two modes of security, I think, for their kids. They want financial security and, you know, personal security. Somebody loves you and you have the money to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, childless, spouseless, and working class, which is also the name of my new <laughs> rap album, <coughs> <laughs> debut, major. Record label album. Uh, it's it's just it, it's a good way to quickly summarize how I think we disappointed my, my, my father, actually. Um, he, though he would never say it. You know, actually, he probably did say it a little bit here and there. But I don't think he felt it maybe as powerfully as my brother and I feel it. Especially now that he's gone and there's no way to redeem ourselves, you know, with him alive.
0: And what? how far along in your education had you gotten when when your father passed?
1: I had earned a useless PhD by then. I, he was very proud of that. Um, I think he'd always hoped that, you know, when... If anyone was going to call me Doctor Sindosaraj, I think he was hoping he'd be a real <laughs> doctor—the kind, of doctor. kind you would, you know, call for help on a plane. What did you? What kind, What did you?
0: What did you compare it to? Uh, it was you, basket weaving. A, a yes. doctor in basket weaving. Yes,
1: that's that's what I have. Expert basket weaver here. Uh, so yeah, I I'd had a lot of education. I think I, you know, I. Did, <laughs> It wasn't sensible education. It wasn't the kind of education that translated into the type of success and security that he wanted. So I think he made do with it. He was very proud of me, but I don't think he understood it. And um, you know, he had been right all along. I probably should have studied computers, as he called it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just just studying computers yes. generically. Yes. Clickety clack. You make money. Yes. Um, do, you, ha, do you have a sense of how your father self-identified from a class standpoint? Because it was something that I, I imagine he was acutely aware of as well, that he imagined that the sacrifice, the the difficulty was to propel you guys up into, into another place. So did he talk about it? Was there a way that he would sort of discuss where he felt he was and where he wanted you to be?
1: He was not at all concerned about where he was. It was really about where my brother and I were going to be, how we were going to set ourselves up to be secure and safe uh, so that when he, you know, when he was gone, we would be able to take care of ourselves. So he was very, it was never, he never worried. I mean, he worried about his own livelihood in the sense that he wanted to provide. And if, you know, when he, he happened to lose a job, which he did a couple of times, it was very traumatic for him, not in the sense of, I don't think. I mean, if he had any shame about it, he never really showed the shame. It was more the stress of how am I now going to continue to provide for my children so they are not ashamed, they are not embarrassed, and they're able to you know, meet the, the markers of success that he so wanted for us.
0: And did your mother work after you moved here, and what was that like?
1: She did actually. She worked uh, first. She was babysitting. She babysat a lot of uh, random children. Uh, one of my favorite stories is actually one day she didn't come to pick me up from school from kindergarten. and I was you know so like traumatized and I you know braced myself to be kidnapped as I'm walking home and then I see her over the horizon horizon over the steps <laughs> and she uh, she's got a, a kid in a baby carriage and another little boy and some some house painter had knocked on our door and said hey I got to go to work or I'm gonna be fired can you watch my kids I'll be back in 8 hours and so you know she she was always babysitting and then eventually she became a uh, cashier at Zares which eventually became Ames um so she always had she eventually you know worked outside of the home as well
0: and was there i don't know if there's a um a Tamil community in is it Adelphi? Mm-hmm. and is there and, and and did your father have a sense of where he stood within that community as far as what the expectations were for the kids and what he was trying to strive for in the family,
1: very much so there's a huge Indian Tamil uh, we overlapped with a lot of a seven day adventist community, even though my parents were episcopal, uh, so there was a lot of people that came over here together and that were also became friends uh, in the Langley Park, Maryland area. so he had a lot of, he had a huge community over time. I think uh, my parents' roles in in that community diminished uh, just because they were uh, not making the like the class leaps that other people in our community were. They weren't leaving behind Langley Park. Their kids weren't transitioning into better paying jobs. So in, in that sense, our, there, I should say, place in that community diminished uh, immensely over time. But my father was always very loved, uh, very beloved. Everyone adored him and thought he was uh, such a sweet, kind, uh, generous man with his time and his gifts. I thought of Grey because of an Irish legend his widow recounted on NPR after Gray's death. The legend claims that any bird found in the home following a death indicates the current mental state of the dead in the afterlife. More succinctly, dead bird equals distraught soul, live bird equals happy soul. This superstition is not unique to the Irish. Nearly every major religion associates death with birds, from the Hindus to the ancient Greeks. After Gray's funeral, his widow was determined to keep birds out of their house. She wanted no messages from the dead. This was unlike my brother who, before our brain-dead father was even taken off life support, desperately wanted word from the other side. Where was our father? My brother asked. Was he floating above when we decided to turn off the machines pumping his chest? What did he make of his brimming funeral? No space in the teeming pews? Was it his magic that a humble savings fund opened in Sri Lanka when my brother was an infant somehow matured 30-odd years later, exactly one month before the bill for the funeral was due? Was it our father who tipped the casket as it descended into the dirt, the pulley malfunctioning for the first time in 38 years, the gravedigger said, a fluke accident that shaved $8,000 off the funeral my brother and I could hardly afford? Was that him? Unlike my brother, Gray's wife heard immediately from her dead. Regardless of her efforts, live birds appeared in her home several times after her husband's suicide. They indicated by being alive that Gray, whose own mother had also committed suicide, was at peace. In the days following my father's death, I also considered the prospect of seeing birds, though with the weather there were fewer birds around. My father's death occurred during what is joyfully remembered as the snowpocalypse of 2009, when two snowstorms struck DC with accumulations of two feet twice in two weeks. Days after the snowy funeral, I sat in a boyfriend's apartment in Foggy Bottom, looking down on the slow-moving drama of a traffic circle. I watched for collisions. Suddenly, yellow-speckled starlings by the dozens landed on the slim ledges of the panoramic windows. They landed in one ripple, a wave of black wings, then suddenly there, dozens of birds. Inches from me, the birds bore down, struggling to remain on the thin brick ledges, despite the wind. Their feathers ruffled every which way. Despite the double-pane glass, there were audible gusts. I've never seen birds on the ledge like this, my boyfriend commented from behind me. He opened the camera on his phone. Look how many there are. What do you mean, never? I was already stunned by the bird's sudden and stubborn appearance. That this was a first was unbelievable. Never, he answered, marveling at them himself. He continued snapping photos. How long have you lived here? I asked, still looking at the shiny birds. It had been several minutes. Five years, he answered, clicking at the birds with his phone. Not one bird ever.
0: So... You're looking at the starlings out the window. I mean, I think you imply what's going through your head, but I'm actually curious what was actually going through your head.
1: That's really hard to answer. I, you know, I am an atheist. I don't really believe. I I was surprised. I was stunned. I was, you know, warmed. I felt like it was some manifestation of my dad or my desire to see my dad. I, I think that's the point of this essay is that I can't reconcile any of it to what I actually believe and think. And so it's just this undermining of everything that I think and believe. And it's this comforting um contradiction in a way. So I, I'm sure I was I'm sure I was tingly and goosebumpy and I felt that my father was near. But you know, was that actually what was happening? I you know, I don't know. When my father was a boy in Colombo, he dismantled his father's radio. Curiosity about its inner workings, how voices from afar were transferred by the tiny box, made him do it. He soon discovered he was not simply handy, as many boys are encouraged to be, but that he was talented with his hands, trustworthy with any tool. These were not his only endowments, however. A trophy-collecting track star with a love of sports my brother and I would both inherit, he was handsome and quick to tease. Up until his last week, he replied, India, to any question of location or origin, whether it be where he had purchased his hat or where he could be found later that day. India. Where did you find my shoes, Uppa? India. Where should we park? India. His answer was so deadpan and swift, it always took a moment to register as a joke. He was quietly funny, modest in everything. This translated even to his ambition, which was unswervingly bound up in my brother and me. By the time my brother was born in 1972, Ceylon was already a bloody place with scant opportunities. No street was immune to the civil war, nor any quarter of the island really thriving, and thus no chance my father would leave my brother's prospects in such barren straits.
0: What was your father doing in Sri Lanka before he moved the family? Like what was what what were what was your family up to?
1: Just gotten a job working at a bank doing some type of clerical work. So nothing really um, that magnificent at all. My mother didn't work um, at that time. So he was just really looking around for how to make some money. And just out of desperation, uh, America was the way to go.
0: And is it, was it difficult at the time to immigrate? I don't know what, like, what that would have involved.
1: Lots of paperwork. lots and lots of paperwork actually um, I wrote another essay about this but at one point he was uh, he had to leave America he'd landed in the states and then his visa expired so he actually had to go to Canada so he stayed in Canada like this YMCA by himself his family in Sri Lanka his brother-in-law in in DC and like him in Canada it was crazy it was a wild wild journey and I'm just so impressed with him and all the people that are willing to take that on because I can't imagine being like hey I'm gonna move to China and take you know all the steps necessary to make that happen it's a little wild yeah
0: that seems like it would be incredibly complicated Mm -hmm. um and when was he able to bring your mother and your brother over he came first
1: yes he came over first and then i think a a year or two i want to say more than actually about two two and a half years later my uh, mother and brother were allowed to come over and then i was born a few years after that My father arrived in Washington, D.C. in 1974 with no more than a high school diploma. He devoted himself to numerous jobs, including cashier at 7-Eleven and fry cook at Kentucky Fried Chicken. He smiled through every overtime hour he worked at a wide variety of simultaneously held jobs, wore himself down with every kind of labor, and answered yes to any request for his prodigious skills—plumbing, carpentry, car mechanics, roofing— even navigation of DC's infamously labyrinthine streets. The only thing my father did not know how to do expertly was rest. In his last years, he remodeled our home, room by room, even though he was nearing 70. He performed my last oil change. He made mutton curry for Thanksgiving. His last days were spent, as I so often recall him, hunched over a loved one's disabled vehicle. He always said yes, yes a thousand times, Yes, in excess. Yes to any colleague, any friend, any boss. If I asked for oranges one day, I would have oranges for weeks. Oranges waiting in bags for my next visit. Oranges of different kinds. Oranges because I had asked, and the answer was yes, of course, yes. My father was an affirmative, an affirmation. My brother and I never wanted. He drove us to nearly every major city in the US in a rented car he couldn't afford, Waited endless hours for the end of football practice and piano lessons, made evident in every instant that each step he took away from Salon was for the sole purpose of securing a promising life for his wife and children.
0: Traveling to every city or many cities in North America, like, can you tell me about that a little?
1: So it was every major city, every city that he had heard of, so Boston, New York, Chicago, Atlanta, Miami, and then one big cross country trip to uh, Southern california so it was just cities that he had heard of. He would rent a car, and you know it was like this panicked uh, three or four days to go visit some you know crazy sites that he thought we should go see, and then this you know mad, intense dash home to return the car in time for whatever you know not to incur the next day's penalty and he'd be like falling asleep and i'd be trying to keep it was in, it was very intense there were uh, very stressful trips in a lot of ways but now i mean i love to travel and i'm pretty sure that's uh, all my dad i love to travel in a car like my favorite thing to do is to take road trips actually
0: and that was the whole family that was you your brother your mother and your father Mm-hmm. For hours and hours and hours.
1: Hours and hours. And We all hated each other. We we're always fighting all the time. It was really um, <clears throat> terrible and disastrous emotionally. But it was great to be able to say I'd been, you know, to all of these cities. And I, you know, there's something uh, disorienting and unmooring and very like um, powerful about traveling a lot. I think when you're a kid, like see that there's, you know, here's a city where nobody knows you and nobody cares who you are. <laughs> you could totally disappear. I thought that was um, had a powerful effect on me. And uh, and how much importance. My dad was such a miser in a way, right? Because he was so poor. So for him to place so much importance on it that he was willing to spend all of this money to go, just really weighted it for me as well.
0: And did he feel like he was did he feel like it was a kind of like an education of, on America? Like was it because he lived on an island and like here was this enormous landmass like do you know part of what was really inspiring him to make such a priority of this?
1: I think a huge part of it was definitely cars. Like, he loved cars. I love cars. My brother, even my mom. Like, we, it was a, it was, there was something very liberating about the car and the fact that you could have one in this country and go anywhere you wanted. And like, it, it, I think that was, um, the first part of it for him is how liberating it was that so he might live in this shitty apartment in this weird part of the world they didn't think was going to look like this when he got here, but he could get into a car and go anywhere um, for, for, you know, an affordable amount of money. And then I think the other things, like just beauty, you know, we would go to, you know, mountains and go camping also. Like I think he was motivated by beauty and adventure, um, obviously very comfortable with traveling. <laughs> so I think he just, he just wanted to see new things. The day I cleaned my father's grave and ate for the first time in weeks by happening upon the very food he used to bring me, I called my brother. I just went to Uppa's grave, I mentioned lightly as I exited the cemetery. I didn't want to worry him with my hunger, so I didn't say anything about Vanya. That's funny, my brother answered. I dreamed of him last night. Unlike Gray's wife, my brother wished for any contact, settling for dreams that didn't come as often as he wished. I hadn't dreamed of him in a while, my brother continued. A long time. Oh, yeah? I pulled into traffic, thinking of my hunger and the Cajun rice. What was up a doing in the dream? I asked my brother absently. He was bringing us food.
0: I want to thank Alice Endosraj for coming and sharing her essay and conversation with the Fictionist First podcast. And we hope that you enjoyed the essay and the
1: conversation, and thank you for listening.